This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Ellie and Tamima Leibowitz in loving memory of Ellie's mother, Nancy Leibowitz, Chana Rachel Bas Ezreal Zeled, whose yard site falls out this week. May her soul be elevated in heaven. And of course, we thank them for their support and for their sponsorship. If you would like to sponsor a Parsha podcast, or if you want to share with me any message at all, please email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. That is rabbi with two Bs, Bs as in boy, and Walby with one B as in boy, and not a P as in Parsha. That does not go to my email inbox. Now, I answer every email. Sometimes it takes a while. I'm always experimenting with new ways to deal with the email load more efficiently, but eventually get to every email, and please forgive my tardiness. Before we get into a few quick notes, of course, we are on the doorstep of a new calendar year, and it's always a good time to make a New Year's resolution. And even though, of course, we don't follow the secular calendar, whenever there's an opportunity to improve and to accept upon yourself a new resolution to be a better person, it's always an opportunity to be seized. And of course, the best resolution that you could possibly make is to study more Torah. And therefore, I would encourage everyone to consider to sample some of my other podcast channels. I know the Parsha podcast audience is maybe the sharpest audience that we have. And therefore, I would suggest, if you have not yet done so, to check out my podcast channel called Torah 101. I think that would be a fitting channel for someone who has not yet sampled it. Give it a listen. See if you like it, and maybe that could be a way to study more Torah in 2021. Now, there's nothing, of course, like having a study partner and like having some individualized attention. And therefore, as a means to help you with your New Year's resolution of studying more Torah, our organization, Torch, has hired a new rabbi, and he's brand new, and he's fresh, and he's eager to study more Torah with everyone, all of our students and all of our friends. And because he just recently joined the team, his schedule is relatively empty, and we're filling up his schedule. So I'm doing something here which is unprecedented. Never happened before in the history of the Parsha podcast, or frankly, any other podcast. If you want to study with our new rabbi, Rabbi Abrahams, we have some spots available. They're probably going to go fast. If this is something you'd like to consider, to study with a Torch rabbi one-on-one over Zoom or Skype or FaceTime or on the phone or whatever it is, shoot me an email and we'll see if it works something out. My email address is, of course, rabbiwolbyatgmail.com. Now, we are also about to finish the year and we're closing up the fiscal year 2020. And veteran listeners know that I'm not a big fundraiser. I don't ask for money every episode, of course. Once a year, we have a campaign, and during that week, essentially takes a day or two, but really it's a whole week of fundraising, I make a really hard ask from everyone that I know, really. Anyone that I know, I have your email address, I have your phone, I'm going to call you, and we're going to get your support. But at the end of the year, we're not going to make a hard ask, we're going to do a soft ask. If you have been considering supporting the Parsha Podcast and the great work of our organization, Torch, you want to do so, maybe this is a good opportunity. Before the end of the year, visit our website, Torch Web, 
org and support the great work of Torch in Houston and, of course, of the Parsha podcast and many other podcasts, of course, spreading Torah throughout the world. So we're up to Parsha's Vayechi, which is the last installment, the final Parsha of the book of Genesis. And we're about to say goodbye to the book of Genesis, closing that book. And, of course, next week, please, God, with the help of the Almighty, opening up a brand new book, the book of Exodus. And, of course, we will look back on Genesis quite fondly. There's wonderful stories. There's wonderful drama. We meet great heroes and villains. There's great tension. The protagonist must face down great challenges. We read about great triumphs and great rivalries. There's all kinds of stories. And there's a lot of narrative in Genesis. But today, I want to focus on the book in general. The book holistically. What is the grand takeaway of the book of Genesis? What is the continuous theme of this first book of the Torah? Of course, we know the word Torah means instruction. And typically, when you think about the instructions of the Torah, we have the mitzvahs of the Torah. And there's 613 mitzvahs throughout the five books of Moses, starting with Genesis, ending, of course, with Devarim, with Deuteronomy. And all five books comprise the Torah. Yet it's not exactly immediately clear what the Torah, what the instruction is of Genesis. Of course, we're about to embark on the book of Shmos, the book of Exodus. And in that book, we will see a lot of instructions. There's all kinds of mitzvos, but in Genesis, there is a paucity of mitzvos. In fact, there are only three. The mitzvah of procreation in the book of Genesis chapter 1. And then there is the mitzvah of circumcision of brismil in chapter 17. And of course, the mitzvah not to eat from the sciatica. So we have 12 weeks and all kinds of stories. But as we conclude the book, I think it is worthy to ponder and to explore the question, what is the lasting lesson what is the instruction of the book of Genesis? And of course, as is true with most good questions, there's probably more than one good answer. So, for example, the Ramban throughout Genesis, he reiterates the point that everything that happens to our forebearers is a sign, is a guidepost, is a directive for their children. The book of Genesis is the blueprint of our history. Whatever happened to our forefathers will happen to us. And therefore, Genesis, we could argue, is supremely valuable because it's the guide of Jewish and world history. The patterns of Genesis will repeat themselves again and again. I think that's a very legitimate answer to the question of, of what is the instruction, what's the takeaway of the book of Genesis. I think there's also a second excellent answer, and that is that Genesis, even though it doesn't have so many instructions of how to behave, mitzvos, but it is bursting with all kinds of lessons and lessons of how to be a good person. Of course, great character is a prerequisite for all of Torah. And starting from Adam and going throughout the 12 partios of Genesis, we learn all about good character. We learn what to do, and of course, what to avoid. 
In the Garden of Eden episode, we see the pitfalls of temptation. In the aftermath of the sin, we see the destructiveness of selfishness. We see the deadly pitfall of envy and the irreparable and eternally consequential nature of homicide in the Cain and Abel fratricide. And then we move on to Parshas Noach. And in the flood, we learn about the perils of idolatry and theft and immorality. We see what happens when global corruption reaches the point of no return. And then there's the dispersion. And we learn valuable lessons from the dispersion. How unity can be weaponized for a terrible goal. And how humans can acknowledge God and spitefully rebel against him. And then we meet, of course, Abraham and Sarah, and they demonstrate the transformative trait needed by all. And that is to abandon the comfort of inertia, lech lecha, abandon your comfort zone, and go unlock your potential. And of course, Abraham is one of the great heroes of all time. He teaches us the value of total commitment to God and superlative kindness. When God instructs Abraham to banish Ishmael, to slaughter Isaac, Abraham obeys unquestioningly. And the quest for a spouse for Isaac, I think, shows us a sane way to seek a spouse. Understand what you want. Design systems to determine if the prospective candidate has those qualities. And do that, of course, in conjunction with prayer to the ultimate matchmaker, God. And find the spouse while avoiding the risk of getting infatuated. Chapter 24, the chapter that talks about Eliezer going to find a spouse for Isaac, I think is a complete master class in finding a spouse. And that, of course, is relevant to us till today. Isaac and Rebecca, they show us the Torah response to infertility. They incessantly pray for a child. It's been 20 years since they got married. They still don't have children. And they pray and pray and pray and storm the heavens and get an affirmative answer. Jacob shows us what intolerance to evil looks like when he berates the loafing, lounging employees waiting at the well in midday. Jacob himself is a model employee. He, despite being continuously fleeced and bilked by his father-in-law slash employer Laban, he works with complete integrity. When Jacob and his family abscond away from Laban, Laban comes and searches the camp from top to bottom and doesn't find a single thing that belongs to him. Jacob and his family are a model of total honesty and total integrity. Jacob's encounter with Esau shows us how to engage with enemies. We bribe them. We prepare for war and have contingency plans in case things don't go as planned. And of course, we pray. Jacob is the master of not responding reflexively and impulsively when Reuben acts inappropriately, when Shimon and Levi slaughter an entire city, he holds on to his criticism for decades and he only admonishes them before he dies. Tamar teaches us to never embarrass someone publicly. Judah is the exemplar of admitting his own guilt. Joseph shows us how to tenaciously refuse to capitulate to sin. Joseph demonstrates how to see God's hand in everything that happens to us, even the things that appear to be quite negative. There are many, many wonderful, valuable, necessary lessons in Genesis. And I think that's a very good answer to our question. What is the takeaway? Why should we study Genesis? Well, this is a book of ethics and character 
and it's the best of its kind. There's complete, comprehensive advice on how to become a master of self-control, on how to develop sterling character, and how to perfect and refine oneself. But today, I want to suggest a new approach, one that I think explains Genesis holistically, why the book ends where it does, and what is the transition that's going to happen from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. And I think it's valuable not only as a retrospective of what happened hitherto in Genesis, I think it's also going to get us in the right frame of mind for our quest to understand the book of Exodus. So I think we could suggest that Genesis, the whole book, is about finding candidates for a mission. And of course, the mission is Torah. And that becomes official at Sinai right after the Exodus. And of course, we're going to read that in the book of Exodus. But I like to look at the book of Genesis almost like a giant funnel. It starts off really big. Everything and everyone is in contention. And as we progress throughout the book, this funnel progressively narrows and narrows until we have sifted through everyone and arrived at the best candidates for the job. And once we finish the book, we have the candidates. And the book of Exodus, something else happens to those candidates. So let's explain. The first verse of Genesis, it starts with the creation of heaven and earth. And if you just read that, you would say, okay, we have a great book here on cosmology, on ecology. It's about heaven. It's about earth. Sounds really interesting. But that's really the last that we hear of heaven, essentially, or earth. Once we spend one verse on heaven and earth, that's it. We quickly run through Genesis until the arrival of man. We start with a huge net, and we narrow it down to man. And once we start talking about man, we cease talking about the things that grow, and the animals, and the birds, and the constellations. Humanity is all that matters. And of course, we start off with all of humanity, with Adam, with Eve. Everyone is part of the pool, and soon that gets chopped in half. Abel is, so to speak, voted off the island, and Cain is all that we have left. And the rest of Genesis essentially can be described as this grand sifting event. After 10 generations, there's an elimination essentially of everyone besides for Noah and his family. They make the cut and no one else does. Just Noah emerges from his generation and even Noah, it's not really the whole family, Ham doesn't really make the cut with Noah. And then we have the generation of the dispersion. And once again, there's this shaking of the box. We're trying to find a candidate for a job, for a mission. And finally, after 20 generations, Abraham emerges. And he takes responsibility for changing the world. But even Abraham, it's Abraham, yes, but not his son Ishmael. He is almost discarded from the storyline, from the narrative. We follow the story of Isaac and not Ishmael. 
And even with Isaac, it's Jacob, and it's not Asaph. And Jacob's whole story is essentially for the last couple of weeks, it's been kind of touch and go. What's going to be with Ruvain? He seems like maybe he's not a candidate when he tampers with Jacob's conjugal life. And then Shimon and Levi, they slaughter an entire city. Maybe they're not going to make it the next round. And Judah has his flirtations with being expelled as well from the family. And the brothers sell Joseph as a slave. Maybe they're done. And Joseph is stranded in Egypt. He's vulnerable to maybe losing his status. But ultimately, at the end of the book, what do we have? All of Jacob's children have been vindicated. All have been proven to be righteous. All are blessed by Jacob. Jacob reveals to them their strengths and their weaknesses and the tools that they are going to use to effectuate their mission. The book of Genesis closes with all the candidates, all the people, all the personnel, as they say, they've all been selected and they're all in place. Think about it. There are three mitzvos in the book of Genesis. According to this model, according to this framework, if you will, the book of Genesis is about finding the right people. I find it noteworthy that all three mitzvos of Genesis are really all about procreation, but not just having children and propagating. It's about doing it properly. So, of course, the first mitzvah is to procreate. But the second mitzvah is circumcision. And the commentaries explain that circumcision is done specifically on the procreation organ because we have to make a pact with God, partner with Him, to use this superpower of procreation to create the right kind of people. And then we have the Gid Hanasha, the sciatica. Commentaries there explain that that's right next to the genitalia because Jacob was only vulnerable in one area of his life, namely the fact that he married two sisters. And perhaps we can, we can suggest that this mitzvah is about making sure that our marital procreation superpowers are free of sin. The whole book is about getting the right people for the job. And it makes a lot of sense, consequently, that the mitzvot of Genesis are about our most sacrosanct responsibility and our most lasting legacy, namely, what kind of children are we going to bring into this world? What kind of people are going to represent our nation after we pass? These mitzvot essentially highlight the general theme of Genesis. Let's sift through all the people and 99.9% of them are discarded, are booted from contention. And once we finish the book, we have the candidates for the mission. And that's where the book of Genesis ends. But they're not quite yet ready for the job. They're not yet entrusted with this mission. Sinai is still a long ways away. The nation is about to undergo a very traumatic experience. They're going to be enslaved and oppressed and tormented for hundreds of years in Egypt. We have the candidates. Now they need to be trained. 
and they're going to undergo a rigorous training for their mission. We have the best candidates. Everyone who's not a good candidate is no longer part of the purview, the focus of the Torah. We have the candidates on board. Now it's time to train them before we can give them their mission. And you know what? It's not pleasant. The training in Egypt is quite grueling. But then it ends. And we're going to have the exodus. And we're told in our sages, Rashi actually brings us in the beginning of Parshas Beshalach, the fourth section, the fourth Parsha in the book of Exodus, Rashi tells us that 80% of the Israelites, 80% of the Hebrews actually did not leave Egypt. They stayed there. What that tells us is that we had the entire nation. The entire nation made it through Genesis. But only 20% of the nation was strong enough to withstand, to endure the training. There was this process of refining and filtering and crystallizing and sifting and cleansing and removing anyone who is not cut out. And by the Exodus, 20% of the people remain. And these people amount to 600,000 Jewish souls who stood at the foot of the mountain on Mount Sinai and they got the mission and they got the mandate and they got the Torah. So, of course, the entire Torah is about Torah. But we don't get it right away. We first have to go through the entire book of Genesis. And all the people that are just not good candidates to have the Torah are all just eliminated from the storyline. At the end of the book, we have Jacob and his family, 12 sons and their family, and that's it. Okay, this is our team. These are the people that we're going to go to war with. And then the book of Exodus begins, and it's not pleasant at all. But in retrospect, we look at this section as the training. The nation is being primed for the Exodus, for the revelation, for the breakthrough to be able to receive their mission. So perhaps we can suggest that maybe there are five stages of national transformation. We have the Genesis stage, and that's finding the right candidates and eliminating those who don't qualify. Stage one. Stage two, enslavement. This is a rigorous and really a bit ruthless training phase. Think of it like the Navy SEALs. Who gets an interview? Only the best of the best gets an interview with the Navy SEALs with for those who don't know what that is, it's like the best warriors that we have in the American military. The special operations, absolute creme de la creme, the best of the best. To be part of this rarefied fraternity, you have to really be an ace. But even then, you need to be trained. And that's called Hell Week. It's not pleasant at all. They put you through inhuman conditions to see if you really have what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. But once you're done, once you finish that second stage, we have the Exodus and the Revelation. That's the breakthrough where the 20% who did make the cut are, so to speak, brought into the light. And then there's the mission stage, and that's Sinai, where the people are given their marching orders. You have been selected and sifted 
you are the person who's worthy of this job, who's capable of this job, here are your marching orders. And finally, the fifth stage, and that is you have Torah. Go out and do it. And of course, after Sinai, there are still challenges, obviously. But the roadmap is here. You know what you need to do. I find this kind of looking at the entire narrative holistically, big picture, I find it very empowering. If you are a Jew alive today, you are someone who made the cut. Out of all the people who dropped off at one stage or another, you endured. Everyone who is still around, everyone who is still part of this nation, you are someone who is A, capable of effectuating our national mission, but we also need you. You're critical. You're indispensable to the mission. You have something that you can and you must contribute. We exist. And we are after all this. We're after Sinai. Our existence is evidence to the fact that we already endured all the elimination rounds. How many people did not make the cut? 99.9999% of humanity were eliminated before Sinai. There were poor candidates who were just gone in Genesis. And there were good candidates who just weren't up to snuff and were eliminated in the exodus, so to speak, stages of the storyline. And we got the Torah at Sinai. And the Talmud tells us that all Jewish souls, including, by the way, the souls of future converts, they were all present at that event. Thus we see how we are the 0.01%. We have all the abilities to be the ones who bring the world to its fruition. There's great joy and delight in this realization, but of course there's great responsibility as well because we are the bearers of Abraham's legacy, the world, humanity, existence, is in our hands. I want to add one more point. I imagine that this model, this framework, it actually is true on an individual level as well. Our personal responsibility also follows this five-step process. There's this selection of the candidates stage, the genesis, if you will, and then there is the grueling training phase, maybe we could call that the Egyptian enslavement, and then there's a breakthrough. And only after you have those three stages can you possibly get your Sinai experience, can you possibly get clarity in what your mission in life is. And just as was true on a national level, our forefathers were subject to rigorous tests and trials before they were given their mission at Sinai. Each one of us, we too, can have our personal Sinai. We too are the best candidates to fulfill our own personal mission. We've been selected for a task that only we can fulfill and no one else can. But just as our nation needed to be prepared and trained, we too must undergo our own Egyptian enslavement stage before we could have our own Sinai. So if you happen to be someone who's going through 
maybe shall we say, a grueling phase in your life. Recognize, you are a Navy SEAL. You're an heir of Abraham. And now is training time. Now is hell week. Is it hard? Yes, of course it's hard. But that's by design. It's hard. It's painful. It's hellish. But it's not for naught. You are being prepared for your task that you must do But before you know exactly what it is, before you have your Sinai revelation, you're going to be trained. You're going to be prepared in the specific way that you need for your mission. And you should know, and you to be comforted, that there is exodus, there is revelation, there is breakthrough around the corner. Soon you too will be at the foot of the proverbial mountain, and the Almighty will show you what you need to do in life. May we all be so fortunate as to accomplish the reason for which the Almighty chose us to come to this world. And may we be among the fortunate ones who, when we get the opportunity to return our soul back to its owner, we can say truthfully, mission accomplished. Okay, this week's A and Q. I am so excited that we got through 12 weeks of the book of Beratius, the book of Genesis. And in each week, thank God, we had a good question for the A&Q. And if you don't know what the A&Q is, if this is the first time that you're listening to the Parsha Podcast, well, first of all, welcome. Hope you enjoy. But the A&Q is the opposite of Q&A. Q&A, the presenter is given questions by the audience, and the presenter has to give an answer. A&Q is the opposite. The presenter throws out a question for the audience. And it's the audience job. It's their responsibility to think and hopefully submit answers. And if you want to submit an answer, of course, you can email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. So here is this week's A&Q. Here's the question. If you look back in Genesis, we see that there's been a lot of suffering that the characters of Genesis have already endured because of sibling rivalry. Jacob and Asa, of course, there was a blessing for one and not for the other. And Jacob steals the blessing, and the other one, his brother, wants him killed as a result. And of course, the whole Joseph and his brother's story is one of sibling rivalry, but that's caused by favoritism. Jacob apparently favors his son Joseph over the rest of Jacob's sons, and Jacob teaches Joseph all his Torah, and he makes him a special tunic, and the brothers do not take it kindly, and they want to kill him, and they ultimately settle for selling him as a slave. And of course, things worked out okay in both of those instances. But you would imagine that Jacob, once he puts it all back together, he realizes that maybe it was a mistake to show favoritism. And apparently, in our parsha, Jacob has not learned his lesson. We're told that Jacob studies with one of Joseph's sons, Ephraim, but not the other. Rashi tells us that in chapter 48, verse 1. So we have Ephraim and Manasseh, two brothers, and apparently Jacob is still showing favoritism to Ephraim over Manasseh. And of course, there's the dramatic crisscrossing of his hands to indicate that Ephraim is greater than Manasseh and deserves a greater 
blessing. Moreover, in our Parsha, Jacob gathers all his sons, 12 sons, and he's going to give them a blessing. But to some of them, he berates them and he admonishes them. Whereas others, he lavishly praises and he gives them warm blessings. Apparently, Jacob has not learned his lessons. Why is Jacob still showing favoritism to some of his sons and even some of his grandsons over others? And I want to ask maybe another related question. Everyone agrees that favoritism is bad. But isn't the first rule of parenting they have to treat every child differently? Every child has to be treated like an individual in accordance with their unique characteristics and identity. So how can you have tailored parenting without the negative consequences of favoritism? If you have an answer, shoot me an email, rabbilbajima.com. Okay, here's the answer to last week's A&Q. Of course, the question was, Joseph did not want Pharaoh to know that his brothers were really talented. And therefore, he took all kinds of measures to make sure that Pharaoh does not enlist them to work for him. He tells Pharaoh they're shepherds, and he tells them to tell Pharaoh that we're shepherds, and he'll present Pharaoh with the weak ones. And indeed, Pharaoh does not try to hire Joseph's brothers. And the question is, what is so bad with a little clout, with a little power? Joseph, after all, he did very well in Egypt. Why is he so worried if his brothers get hired as governors, as politicians, as military people, as ministers in the government? Why is he so worried that Pharaoh is going to hire them? So as always, the Parsha podcast audience never ceases to amaze me. Our friend Sam came up with an answer that I had not thought of. And that is that in Joseph's dream, he saw, he foretold that he's going to rule over his brothers, not in concert with them. And Joseph is someone who's clearly trying to not tamper with the prophetic dreams. And therefore, he wants to make sure that he remains supreme. He's the king. He's the viceroy. He's the one who has the power and his brothers don't. I thought that was a very interesting answer. But there were four longtime listeners who all gave me versions of the same answer. This is the answer that I was actually looking for. And that is like this. The Jewish people, we are the nation of the Almighty. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all promised that we're going to be in the chosen land, in the holy land, in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. Abraham is told to go to the land Jacob is born of the land. Of course, he has some lapses, but ultimately he's very careful in our parsha to be buried there. Isaac is born of the land and he is cautioned to never leave it. And the rest of the Torah is going to be about our nation's efforts to get back to the land of Canaan. We belong in Israel. The fact that we are elsewhere, that is out of the ordinary. That is unusual. That is not where we ought to be. Moreover, when we are outside of the land, we are vulnerable. We're not home. We are visitors in foreign lands. 
And there is a very grave risk that we could lose our identity. The Midrash tells us that the reason why the nation merited to be redeemed, to have the exodus, is because they didn't change their culture. They didn't change their names. They maintained their Jewish names. They didn't change the distinctive way of dressing the Jewish people had at the time. And they didn't change their language. In every other area, the Jewish people acculturated, became assimilated, and were indistinguishable from their Egyptian neighbors. The only difference was that the Jewish people stayed Jewish. Their identity, their culture, the society in which they lived was Jewish. The dress, the language, the names, there was something distinctively Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite, if you will, about them. And because they were still sequestered as a distinct entity, that is the merit of their redemption. Joseph is someone who is adopting, really, Egyptian way of life. He has an Egyptian name, he has an Egyptian wife, he has an Egyptian job. Everything about him is Egyptian. And what makes Joseph unique is that he does not lose his Jewish identity despite everything being in place for that to happen. But he's worried. What's going to be? Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, the most talented people, the most talented family in the world. This is the family of Jacob. This is the most finely sifted flower that there is. All of them get hired. All of them have jobs. All of them have responsibilities. And slowly, they all get acculturated and they get assimilated and they get integrated and they become Egyptian. And what's going to be? Joseph is worried that the nation will not survive this period. And therefore, he is very concerned that they don't get these jobs. Because you know what? Maybe even the brothers of Joseph could do it. They could hack it. But what's going to be the next generation? And what's going to be with the generation that follows? It's a grave risk. And it's one that you cannot tolerate. And therefore, Joseph wisely made sure that the nation gets sequestered, gets isolated in the land of Goshen. They can live amongst themselves. And they are shepherds. We're told in Rashi that this is a particular occupation that the Egyptians revile, and that's going to help buffer them. It's going to make a moat around them. It's going to protect them a little bit from totally being swallowed up in the melting pot of Egypt and losing what makes them distinct. And some of the listeners added that this is something that we still struggle with today. We, of course, we, a lot of us live in the United States, other places in the world, we're not really where we're supposed to be. And that's really to our detriment, or at least it's dangerous. Because how can we preserve our identity and our culture when everything around us is trying to essentially encroach upon that and where there's this melting pot idea that you're supposed to become an American or a Frenchman or a British gentleman or a Russian or Australian or whatever it is. And that is the risk. That's the risk what happens when we're in the diaspora or away from where we're supposed to be. Are we going to maintain our identity?
And Joseph, with tremendous foresight, he made sure, he took the necessary steps to ensure that that's not going to happen to the Jewish people, to the Israelite family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land of Egypt. One of the listeners, Ricardo, he told over a joke in his email to me. He said he heard a joke that the czar met Napoleon and said to him, well, Napoleon, I don't get you. We're persecuting the Jews. We're killing the Jews. We're burning their houses. We're secluding them. And you give them citizenship and you make them French. Why are you so nice to the Jews? Napoleon responded, and I don't know if this is apocryphal, this happened, but the idea I think is true. Well, you kill the Jews your way. I kill them my way. And of course, we're always happy when our Gentile overlords, when our Gentile hosts are nice to us and don't discriminate against us. But there's some truth to this idea that, for example, when when the Jews arrived in their masses, the United States, and they didn't maintain their Jewry, of course, many did, but most, if you will, didn't, a lot of them just dropped off the map and became totally assimilated. And unless we have something that changes drastically, they're lost to their people. And that's what Joseph was worried about. And therefore he said, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm even going to forfeit on power and clout to ensure that my brothers and the family can live by themselves, can be a little bit insulated and be protected from the great peril and danger of total assimilation and acculturation into the Egyptian way of life, which, had it happened, we're told, would have precluded us from ever being redeemed. I thank you for listening. I thank you for your tremendous outpouring of support to the Parsha Podcast, to Torch in 2020 and throughout the book of Genesis. I look forward, please God, next week to have another episode of the Parsha Podcast Beginning the book of Exodus, have an amazing rest of your week, have an amazing Shabbos, and best of luck and regards.